Hi, my name is Rex Woodbury, and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy 2022. And welcome to this, the first episode of the second season of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis. I thought long and hard about who I wanted to have as the first guest to kick off the second season. I wanted to try and find someone who I felt was exploring many of the themes that I covered last year. I wanted someone who could talk about Gen Z and digital culture, who could talk about creators and creator economy, the metaverse, <laughs> Web3, who could talk about crypto, who could talk about all of these themes that we touched upon last year and do so with a very strong eye on what's currently happening in the industry at large and meaningfully make suggestions and predictions about where things are going. And when I was looking through my emails and my newsletters and my blogs and LinkedIn and Twitter trying to find who represented that. One name came up again and again. If you don't follow him, I highly recommend that you do. His name is Rex Woodbury. Uh, he is a partner at a VC firm called Index Ventures. And amongst many other things, he writes a fantastic newsletter really focusing on exactly the themes of this podcast, trends in modern digital entertainment and how they are impacting the way we live and with a particular focus on how we play. So happily, Rex agreed to come on to the podcast. We had a wonderful conversation and what we touched upon is something that I think is really pertinent right now. <laughs> if you've been following at all the web 3.0 crypto whatever, you've seen that there's a pretty strong divide between the red pill and the blue pill. Those who believe in a decentralized crypto powered future are generally speaking all in on web 3.0 stuff and there are many who don't believe in the power of crypto or the power of web 3 or frankly that decentralization is really a thing and for whom all the talk about you know whatever cryptocurrencies or blockchain or or whatnot feel very fraudulent and frankly snake oil ish and there's a pretty strong divide. Uh, there's not a lot of people who sort of sit right in the middle, or at least there's not a lot of vocal people who sit right in the middle. So what I wanted to explore with Rex, who I think clearly sits on the Web 3.0 side of things and, and has a lot of thoughts about why it really is the future and all the good is going to bring to play and, and entertainment and communication and networking and communities and frankly, humanity. I wanted to explore with him how more traditional companies, quote unquote, web 2.0 companies could partially transition into web 3.0. How do traditional companies explore web 3 ideas without fully alienating their players, their fans, their community? What lessons have we learned over the last few months about the steps that companies can take to explore these possible innovations, these possible opportunities, um, but do so in a uh, non-damaging way? So it was an interesting conversation to be sure. And I won't say that we came up with any Eureka roadmap, do this and this, and the naysayers will love you and swallow the red pill and all become hardcore crypto enthusiasts. I wouldn't say it's that simple. If it were, I think it would all be done by now. But it was a great opportunity to um, hopefully look at the challenges that lie ahead for the industry 
some predictions about what we'll possibly see in 2022 in terms of companies sort of taking steps in this direction. And uh, yeah, just in general, a really sort of insightful overall chat. So settle in, uh, enjoy this first episode, this first interview of 2022 with Rex Woodbury. Thanks. Well, Rex, nice to talk to you again. I've been looking forward to this one for many months. So thank you so much for uh, joining me on the very first episode of season two of this podcast. <laughs> well, thanks, Ben. No, it's it's great to be here. I'm uh, excited to chat about many of our favorite topics. So looking forward to it. <laughs> but before we jump in, I, I guess I just, I, I, I want to share a little bit about how I found you because it, it probably ties a little bit into this introduction. You are a partner at a VC. You tweet a lot. You write a newsletter. You're very sort of present in, I guess, everything that has to do with the kind of technology space. And I found you, I think probably followed you on Twitter, then subscribed to your newsletter. And frankly, it's, it's one of the highlights, you know, of my week is getting that newsletter because oh, I, I always you. find your analysis extremely relevant and insightful. But, to open, you. can you explain a little bit about that? Like, how did you get into, well, just technology in general, in particular sort of consumer mm -hmm. tech and, and I guess maybe even a little bit sort of future-facing tech? And how did that lead to investing and, and like yeah. your role? Well, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. Sometimes it's like sending things out into the void and I wasn't sure anyone other than my dad was really reading. And so I Your dad and me. Um, <laughs> you have at least two. Dad, exactly. <laughs> I have two. I have two. And you probably understand the topics better than my dad, but he is very sweet and, you know, reads it and asks me questions about, you know, what is the metaverse? What is Web3? And so, but I have a feeling we can go more in depth here. I hope so. But no, thank you. Thank you for reading. Yeah. I, I mean, so you have a good idea from that of the things that interest me. It's always been I kind of liken my interest in tech to kind of an, an interest in culture. So okay. I kind of say that I spend time thinking about how culture and tech in, intersect, but uh, I kind of got onboarded into tech through an interest in culture. So growing up, I was always really interested in how people interact with each other, how people interact with content. You know, sometimes when I, I'm telling younger people of advice now that I'm getting a little older on what they should do. In their career, I, I asked them, you know, what do you read when you open the newspaper mm -hmm. or when you read articles online? What are you drawn to? Or when you were a kid, you know, what were the topics that got you really excited and you were interested and passionate about them? And I think for me, you know, taking my own advice, growing up, I was always kind of obsessed with things like box office numbers yep. and the Billboard music charts. The entertainment and, and culture section. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was sort of, you know, I, I enjoyed the money and finance section as I got older. But when I was really young, I was definitely going to the sort of arts and entertainment and yeah. culture and, and lifestyle, whatever you'll call it, section of the paper. And that's where my interest in tech comes from. And, you know, I think if I were a generation or two older, maybe that would manifest in a career in sort of more legacy media, whether that's television or film. But I think the story of our age is is the internet. And, you know, I'm someone who came of age with first MySpace when I was in middle school, now I'm aging myself, and then, you know, Facebook, and then really Instagram and Snapchat and YouTube and, and these sort of big platforms that got me just pretty fascinated with how people interact through technology, how the internet connects the world, how content, especially user-generated content, can change perceptions of the world mm -hmm. and, you know, brought an opportunity for connection and opportunity for earning income in new ways. You know, in a, in a prior life, I uh, earned income on Instagram back when I kind of call it more like the influencer era, the kind of like sponsored Oh my God, that, that was like... A little three years know, ago, that, like wow! Now oh, you're was like really dating yourself. Six or it was like six or seven years ago. <laughs> oh yeah. wow, I, really? I far back in a while. It was there. It was a little cringy, you know. I think I'm as much as I try to be a Gen Z. I'm kind of kind of borderline, but I am a millennial, and I think um kind of came of age with the more kind of millennial ethos of social media, where it was a little more performative, Absolutely. a little more curated, and so for me, I mean. It was that kind of, it was interesting to meet people from around the world through Instagram and earn income, but also kind of, you know, was a interesting education in how social media impacts mental health when you're coming of age as kind of a digital native, or at least someone who can't really remember a world without the internet. And those are all the things that, you know, wow. I get to spend time on now and think about. And I'm really fascinated by, you know, all of the, all of the buzzwords like Gen Z and the creator economy and the metaverse and 
I really do think that we're hurling toward this kind of hurtling toward a, like a digital future, a digital economy. And COVID has probably pulled us toward that by a number of years. It's accelerated that movement. Yeah. And so that's what gets me excited and kind of interested and curious to go to work every day. So, okay, you dropped, you know, 30 buzzwords that we're going to dig into, <laughs> but let's jump into, well, I guess the main theme that I, I invited you on to talk about. You write a lot about metaverse and Web3 and blockchain and crypto. And again, a lot of these sort of buzzworthy type words that have, you know, whatever NFT, wasn't it like the time word of the year last year or something like that? Like, it, <laughs> the, you know, there obviously, so I feel like 2021 <laughs> set a record for most, seriously, most buzzwords. Oh my God. So um, many. It's like every month there was a new too one. Many. And I just wonder what they'll be for 2022. But certainly, like if we go back to the summer of last year, everyone was saying, you know, whatever, metaverse and crypto and NFT, those were all getting tossed around a lot. And then now there's, I would say, a, a stronger shift towards the term Web3. So because we're going to be saying Web3 in this podcast a lot, and we're going to be differing Web3 from whatever its precursor, which I'll just call Web2 because... Can you start out by defining it like, like so, so that everyone listening knows what we are talking about when we talk about Web3? Yeah, I mean, well, first, I, I'll give my sort of quick overview definition and then, you know, would recommend people read more kind of deep dives online. There are great people like Chris Dixon, Jesse Walden and others. There's a great book called Token Economy, which I read early on in COVID, which was helpful for me. But Token Economy is actually an interesting way to think about things of if you web three really is kind of this token economy. And so let's back up to web one, web one is sort of call it 1995 to 2005 or so era. It's this first era of the World Wide web, where most of it is if you think of it as what can you do, it's really read, like you read the web, you are mostly a passive consumer an observer. You know, this is the era of Yahoo and AOL. It's the era of Google. Google is probably the winner of this era where information is connected online. So, you know, information is connected and synthesized and we can all consume it. But it's really this sort of one way path where we're consuming. And then around 2005, we enter Web 2, which is run up until, you know, present day. And that has been sort of the social web. You could think of it as the user generated content web. Really, we go from read to read and write. So, so not only are we MySpace mm-hmm. on kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think we would see Facebook yeah, and absolutely. you know Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter as winners of this era, and as well as you know Uber, Airbnb. But it's really these networks that connect people and content in new ways, and you know totally changes our understanding and and how we're very active participants in the web. But at the same time, you know the real beneficiaries are these platforms. very large centralized platforms, yeah. exactly, and so. You know, we've seen the rise of big tech and, you know, all of the going back to the Instagram has 100 percent take rate. You know, this economy is built for the intermediaries and gatekeepers who do provide a valuable service of facilitating this content creation and connection and community building. But there's really no no piece of economic value for the users. That's right. And so then that leads us to Web3, which, you know, Jesse Walden is called the ownership economy. You know, we, it could also be the token economy, but Really, it's about layering on ownership and economic value to these networks where there's some component of owning economic upside and having a skin in the game and, and profiting from your content. So if you think of creators and, and users of these platforms as really the lifeblood of the Internet, then finally, you know, we all get to participate in the economic engine that's being created here. Yep. OK, so great. And yet, like you use very web examples i mean again facebook myspace you know and some social apps right instagram snapchat that kind of thing as well but my read on web3 is that it also sort of encompasses a lot of people's thinking about gaming platforms online persistent worlds you know etc does that align with your own definitions and, and thoughts yeah i mean it's actually interesting there that i didn't really mention any gaming names but i think some of the biggest winners of the last decade have been, uh, you know, Fortnite, Roblox, Minecraft, which I actually view more as social platforms now of, you know, these are places, these are immersive kind of vast virtual worlds where people can build and create and connect and just hang out. And gaming is also often kind of the the gateway drug to lots of consumer tech innovation. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think it'll be an early adopter of Web3 principles. I think we're going to see business models 
follow suit of what we've seen with micropayments and gaming. But certainly, you know, I, I could almost think of some of those platforms as web 2.5 in that okay, cool. they're beginning to have these digital economies, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. But as long as we agree that when we say web 2 or 2.5, we can be equally comfortably referring to Facebook as we can, you know, whatever, Minecraft or Roblox. And then when we say web 3, we're talking yeah. about whatever, hypothetically, the Axie Infinities or whatever, it is a different model, then we've got a nice clean division between the two that I think will help with the rest of this conversation. And um, yeah. and I mean, those all those companies are definitively Web2, right? Yeah. As we'll talk about, I'm sure it's like, you know, when you buy something in Fortnite or, or Roblox or Minecraft, it's it lives in that walled garden. Absolutely. Quick, just a little quick side note. I mean, it's almost like a joke question, but like, when did Web3 pop? Like, like I feel like, again, it was like January, Metaverse, February, Metaverse. And then there was this moment in time. And in my mind, it's like crystal clear when that moment was. And then everyone's like, I don't want to say the M word anymore. I'm done with the M word. <laughs> we need a new term for this. And suddenly everyone's throwing around Web3. But maybe that's just because that's the lens that I look at the world through, which is, you know, granted a very gaming sort of oriented mm -hmm. lens. Did you see the same thing or, or was Web3 being bandied around a lot more in your circles before the big M announcement? Well, I think I would say Web3 is more a replacement for crypto than Metaverse. Okay. I think Metaverse still has legs and room to run. I do think, you know, my, my hot take is that Metaverse is going to be an increasingly bad word with negative associations, largely because our, you know, good friends at Meta, formerly known as Facebook, kind of co-opted that whole buzzword the big um, m they stole it they made have it attached, their own. They, they stole it i know it's actually it's upsetting but it was becoming a little overused you know I, I think um i saw some tweet from someone who was at uh, a recent conference where you know pretty much every company presenting at the conference you, you was using the m word the metaverse word and i go back to kind of matthew ball's definition of their you know seven kind of things you need where a lot of these companies aren't hitting on Absolutely. You know, two of those seven. But anyway, no, I think I, really Web3, I think, is a kind of a necessary rebranding for crypto. I think, you know, of course, there will always be a buzzword that's in vogue and, and people will probably pick a new buzzword soon. But I like Web3 because it encompasses more than just crypto kind of has that connotation of being about finance. And I think, you know, the movement of Web3 is saying that it's a recognition that the crypto movement is more than finance. It's really kind of a new era of the web. It's a new reinvention of a lot of things that we've come to understand about the internet. Mm -hmm. And so it's broad in that it's, you know, we do have these kind of disparate buzzwords that you've mentioned of all sort of popping up in, in 2021. But I think they're all related. I think, yeah. you know, maybe we do need a catch all and maybe Web3 is that catch all. But, you know, creators are creating the content for the future vision of the metaverse and NFTs are an important piece of ownership of that content. And, you know, Web3 really encompasses most of that. So they all are interrelated and part of this kind of digital economy that's booming right now. Okay. And so I, I, my next question here is to try and use some examples to make the foundational differences between 2.0 and 3.0 concrete. It The most obvious frame for me again is gaming, right? If Roblox is 2.0 or 2.5, then the sandbox or Decentraland is very firmly 3.0. You could use you could use a, a 3.0 version of Facebook if there was one, or a 3.0 version of Instagram if there was one. But if you can't come up with one off the top of your head, maybe Roblox versus Sandbox is, is a good example. But I'm wondering if you can sort of make explicit the differences between 2.0 and 3.0 using some of like a familiar example like that. Yeah. So that's a good, maybe we'll use Roblox and Decentraland, Perfect. for instance. So, you know, in, in Ro or maybe let's use Fortnite because I think it's a little more, the skins in Fortnite are a little more consistent in that. And for those who don't know, you know, the skins are, you know, I can dress up as Iron Man or, you know, Thanos or an NFL player and have that skin in Fortnite. But in Roblox, of course, has tons of different experiences on the platform. But that skin lives in the Fortnite walled garden. You know, I buy it with V-Bucks in Fortnite and then I can't take it elsewhere. And so, you know, I can't take it over into Roblox or Facebook or Instagram or whatnot. It really lives on Epic Games' servers and, you know, that's that. 
Whereas in Decentraland or the Sandbox, you know, Decentraland is you can build virtual showrooms of your NFTs. So the goods there are on Ethereum and you they can live and are interoperable outside of Decentraland as well. And so I actually have provenance and own a parcel of land there. It is not owned by Decentraland Corporation, just like, you know, if I owned land in Fortnite, it would be owned by Epic Games. It's owned by me and it's on the blockchain. And so that's one distinction we can dig deeper into it, but it's really about who owns it. Is it, you know, the corporation or is it me and it lives on blockchain? Cool. Okay. And then just before we go, we move on, you know, so obviously there's ownership, right? And, you know, there's this idea that well, you own your land in Decentraland or you own the skin or whatever. You have, you know, obviously skin in the game. You are literally incentivized to create, incentivized to share, incentivized mm -hmm. to create quality content because you can financially benefit from it. Another term I often hear people tossing around when talking about the difference between 2.0 and 3.0 is trust, right? So, so in 3.0, you're not trusting the developer, you're trusting the consensus or the architecture, you're trusting the community, you're trusting something much more decentralized. Yep. Whereas in 2.0, you're trusting the developer, right? You, you will create an account and share your, you know, whatever personal details on Facebook because you trust that with Facebook, you know, whatever, your data is no worse off with them than it is with whatever, some other platform. So you do have to have a certain amount of trust in the developer to use Apple, to use Facebook, to use Google, to use Roblox, etc. How eroded is, in your opinion, that public trust in these large platforms? Like, are we at a point where Facebook is seriously suffering from a, a significant erosion of trust across wide swaths of its user base? Or is it, you know, again, like the sort of maybe the technocrati who are like, you know, at the cutting edge, the tip of the, the spear, as it were. And they're the ones who are saying, look, there's reasons not to trust here. And everyone else is going to kind of follow suit a few years down the line. Like, how much do you think trust is an issue in the 2.0 versus 3.0 debate? Yeah. Well, I would start this by talking about how trust is shifting over generations, which I think is an interesting mm -hmm. framework. So, you know, the way I think about this is shifting from institutions to corporations to individuals. And actually, my friend Ben Matthew recently shared on Twitter, like a, a graphic that they used at Night Ventures, where he works to capture this, where they view trust in institutions from, you know, let's call it like 1950s to 1990s or so. And you saw here, like, when what did kids want to be when they grew up? They wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. They wanted to work at NASA. Maybe they wanted to work in the government or be a police officer or even work for an institution like the New York Times. And then we shifted into this corporation-dominated era Google. over the last – Exactly. Or they wanted to be like Mark Zuckerberg. They wanted to be Bill Gates. They wanted to exactly work at Google or – Amazon or Microsoft, whatever, the power and trust really shifted to big corporations. And I think one of the biggest shifts of this generation is we're shifting, it's disaggregating even more to trust in individuals. And so, you know, there are probably so many fascinating studies that can be done about this and the rise of Gen Z. And I think a piece of it is growing inequality and, and the Great Recession and COVID and all of these things have contributed. But now it's kind of like people are saying, why would I rent my time to a corporation and get burned by losing my job like I did in the recession or in COVID, why don't I take my own kind of skills and hustle and savvy and put all my trust in myself or in other people like creators that I trust? And, you know, that could be Donald Trump, I think, you know, is is more of a embodiment of this versus the Republican Party, mm -hmm, who's the mm -hmm. institution of the past. I think, you know, Charlie D'Amelio, Kylie Jenner, Rihanna with Fenty, Mr. Beast, there are tons of different interesting examples of the rise of creators or even kind of one person brands in these parasocial relationships that, you know, we go back to, to the beginning of this conversation around social media kind of accelerating this. Right. So I think that's an interesting framework to think about this where, you know, I think the Web3 movement is as much a cultural movement as it is a technological movement. Hmm. And so there are these enabling technologies like Ethereum, like concepts of, you know, blockchain and fungibility. But at the same time, there's this desire to put trust more, more in people, in ourselves and in other people that we trust versus institutions. And so we've seen this with the whole structure of how 
you know, Web3 is built, it's architected so that it's really trustless, in, which is ironic of, you know, I, it's the decentralized nature of the global community that there is no one kind of single point of failure where, you know, with the Web2 era, there, the single point of failure is, is Amazon or Apple or Google. And it's, you know, YouTube deciding to take down your video. It's Twitter banning Trump. It's really these kind of centralized decisions. And so I think, you know, I would I would frame it that way as a decentralization movement that's cultural as well. The one thing I would note is that, you know, I think develop the trust in the developer is that was an interesting turn of phrase because I think you can think of the developer both as Apple mm-hmm. or you can think of the developer as the single person who developed something. And so I would argue that, you know, the trust in the developer in the former definition of this massive corporation that developed it is going down, whereas the trust in the sort of individual developer who maybe is this pseudonymous developer online, you know, is going up where a lot more trust is put into the people who are are building and shipping this stuff around the world. Do you think there is, it's interesting when you were talking about, you know, trust in institution versus, you know, whatever the big companies versus the individuals, there's a natural age mapping there, right? Where I guess my generation would probably be more the trust, the institution generation and then i don't know whatever the 20 year olds or something like that or maybe 20 to 25 year olds mm-hmm. they're the trust the large corporation generation and then the you know sub 20 year olds are are a little bit more the sort of trust the individual generation do you see a mapping between uh sort of web 3.0 uptake and generations are gen z naturally more web 3 ready or more web 3 Willing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, well, I think throughout history, we've seen young people be the sort of forward leaning people of change because maybe they're tired of the status quo or they're more and they don't want to sort of graduate into the lifestyle that, you know, their parents did Mm -hmm. and they see problems with it. You know, I think now the crypto is a very young movement. You know, I think of, you know, Vitalik is what, probably 28. And I think he's, you know, has been the face of the movement for a number of years now. A lot of the people in the last couple of years, the entrepreneurs, the builders who have gotten into the space are in their 20s or even even teens. And I think it's sort of an equal playing field of in order to, you know, rise the rank, rise in the ranks of the Web2 world. You know, you often do you're competing with people who have spent 20 years at Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter, who have a lot of expertise and skills. And so I think because Web3 is so new and so nascent, there there is a lot more ability to kind of manifest your own fortunes there through your own hard work and understanding. I think that's appealing to people. But then I also think just it's this big shift that Web3 is rising from a technology standpoint at the same time that Gen Z is coming of age Mm -hmm. with this whole new worldview where, you know, a lot of it is anti-capitalist. A lot of it is sort of questioning the understanding of work and careers and happiness that have been building for 20, 30, 40 years. And it's really this reaction to unprecedented kind of income inequality and in, in a broken capitalist system in America. So it is very much a sociopolitical um, and socioeconomic movement. But it's really fascinating. Of Over the weekend, I was reading about, to answer your question, an interesting piece about how pop culture has sort of mirrored the different movements. And, you know, you say, you know, people in their maybe late 20s, early 30s are more kind of the corporation people, which I think is right. And there was this great piece about how millennial pop culture pretty quickly dissolved and is no longer relevant. Mm -hmm. And so if we think of the things that even, you know, I grew up with, it was, you know, the Devil Wears Prada, where like the whole movie is about like aspiring to be like a workaholic, like glorifying this New York work lifestyle, or even Leslie Nope from Parks and Recreation, where a lot of her persona is this like sunny optimism of working hard and just believing that if you work hard, have good attitude, things will change. Live to work rather than work to live. Exactly. And like, you know, young people are like, wait a second, you know, this isn't working. Um, Where Gen Z's, where millennials were sort of more idealistic and optimistic, Gen Z's are a little more kind of pragmatic and almost nihilistic in some ways. And I think Web3 fits in with that movement where it says, you know, I'm going to forego college or I'm going to forego this, you know, traditional consulting or banking or big tech job. And I'm going to sort of forge my own path. And there are many more ways for income to be distributed, whether it's being an early backer of a project and buying the token or you know, being some pseudonym, pseudonymous agent across 
the web working on a bunch of different DAOs. You know, it's really this kind of new movement that we're all just kind of trying to keep up as quickly as we can. Interesting. And just really quickly, DAO, Digital Autonomous Organization, I don't know if we need to go too deeply into that, but DAOs in a lot of ways are the Web3 version of a corporation, I guess. So if anyone... Yeah, I think that's right. Or I I mean, I kind of say that they're a combination of two other words, you know, community and and democracy. Uh, You could probably sub those in a lot of ways of, you know, a lot of DAOs are a community of people and they, you know, have shared interests or, or beliefs or worldviews or goals. And then the democracy piece comes from that shared governance. Okay. Okay. So hopefully we've now spent whatever it is, 15 minutes or so sort of outlining Web3. Hopefully it's super clear to everyone what we mean when we talk about Web3. So now let's get into some of the the Web2 to Web3 transition stuff, because this is really really what I want to dig into. 2021 saw a flood of 3.0 companies, drops, DAOs, etc. Some did really well. Some are probably already dead. And there was (laughs) not a shortage of 2.0 companies that were, I guess, like dipping their toes into the 3.0 waters, right? I mean, you know, they're like, okay, well, we we want some of this 3.0 innovation. We want to be um, innovative. We want to par- perhaps even disrupt ourselves. We want to make sure we're creating product that's going to appeal to Gen Z. We know how important they are. Heck, last week, I, you know, was, there's news about Facebook and Instagram, you know, wanting to create NFT marketplaces. So, you know, there's a real example of a kind of like 2.0 company that's at least making noises about dipping its toes into the 3.0 waters. Can you just highlight maybe a few that caught your attention over the year, a few of these sort of experiments that you thought were particularly notable? Yeah, I mean, I think there were so many. Uh, There are some great charts out there of brands entering the NFT space in particular, which are often quite funny to look at. I think, you know, I'm thinking of specifically McDonald's offering a McRib, which is basically an NFT of their McRib sandwich, I guess. But, um, you know, so there were definitely some interesting experiments in projects here. And I don't think many of them were met too well by the Web3 community. And I think a lot of them are sort of built with the wrong ethos of it's like, oh, this is hyped up or a get rich fast kind of scheme versus, you know, really understanding the importance of the movement or NFTs or what they can unlock. So, you know, I think most of them were kind of cringeworthy. I think it's really hard for a Web2 company to just bolt on crypto or bolt on Web3. Um, You know, I think some are doing really interesting things like Nike just bought the company Artifact, which is spelled R-T-F-K-T and makes digital sneakers that are NFTs. You know, I think that's really interesting. I think the concept of digital twins, you know, when you buy something, a commerce transaction offline, you know, having sort of a digital twin or analog online is really interesting. But I think it's very early. And, you know, there was actually an article I read a few days ago about how sneaker heads specifically have just not really embraced digital sneakers yet. And so I think it's still very early there. But, you know, Nike's a, probably a top, you know, three or five most powerful brand in the world alongside maybe Disney and, you know, Google and Apple. And, you know, I think they're one to watch and probably will do some creative things. You know, some of the more interesting things I think have been the smaller kind of experiments, which have been, you know, done a good job onboarding people into to Web3. So one that comes to mind is the Matrix movie did this really interesting experiment where they basically sold 100,000 Matrix inspired avatars and then you know this is to build up hype for the new the move new movie matrix resurrections and these are all nfts and then basically i sold them for like 50 bucks each i think and then a couple weeks later the buyers are able to choose whether they take a blue pill or red pill which is you know from the matrix and and also red pill is kind of a crypto vernacular now for you've been red pilled into the movement. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of poetic. And then basically, if they chose a red pill, then their avatar transforms into a resistance fighter. And so I think that was cool, because it leans into some of the cool things about NFTs. First, you know, the provable scarcity and and ownership, but also the fact that just like Board Ape Yacht Club has done, you know, you can evolve these digital things that you own over time and upgrade them or transition them. And so that was a pretty creative experiment, I think. So I don't know. I mean, I don't 
participate in any let's take the matrix as an example. I don't participate in any matrix communities. I'm sure there are tons of Reddit forums and discord servers and all sorts of stuff, you know, where, where people can celebrate their matrix fandom. I'm not on any of those. So I can't speak with any sort of authority here. But what I wonder Mm -hmm. is if you were a fly on the wall of that community before the NFT announcement, how would you have seen that community react? And and my assumption is from the communities I am a part of and that I have sort of seen the reaction to, that there would be a fair amount of people up on soapboxes shaking their fists and saying, when I was a lad yeah. kind of thing, basically crossing yeah. their arms and saying, we don't want your 3.0-ness in our 2.0 community. Take your NFTs out of here kind of thing. And in the gaming industry, the latter half of, of 2021 had a, a relatively... Uh, Pretty big Deadpool, I, I would say, of 2.0 companies, Ubisoft, for example, or you know, or others, who you know m- made announcements of of experiments, efforts, things yep. they wanted to yep. try, dipping Discord, their toes right. in the yep. 3.0 mm-hmm. water. Yeah, Discord is another example, another great example. They're not saying we're going all in. They're not saying uh, uh, we're a hundred percent crypto now. Or, you know, the, they didn't quite go the the Kickstarter route. They didn't go that hardcore. They just said we want to try some stuff. We want to test some stuff. Yep. And there was backlash. There was serious <laughs> backlash to the point where yeah. several of them really vitriol. Yeah, yeah really um, strong vitriol. And they surprising. had no choice but to sort of back off and say, oh, okay, I guess we're not going to explore this, at least not in the public eye. So right. so where, where does that vitriol come from? Why do you think in some of these, again, I call them 2.0 communities or 2.0 fandoms, whatever you want to call it, why is there such a strong negative reaction towards this idea of trying new things if those new things touch upon 3.0 or crypto? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on what is going to be probably the story of this movement over the next year or two of um, I think a lot of people who are so deep in the Web3 movement underestimate the public sentiment or aversion to crypto and Web3. And I think that in addition to, you know, the kind of commonly talked about, you know, obstacles for the community to get through like scalability or, you know, gas fees, I think, you know, the consumer sentiment and public perception is just as formidable. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of it, a couple of things, a lot of it comes from sustainability and the environmental piece. So I think, you know, Gen Z, if we think of Gen Z behaviors, you know, certainly the one that we've talked about is this, you know, desire for autonomy and flexibility and sort of independence um, and self-direction. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that is like one of the major kind of three I would think of. Another is right next to it is sustainability and caring about the environment. And I think that is a huge problem for Web3 right now. And, you know, I'm thinking specifically of the Discord backlash. When Jason at Discord tweeted, you know, the hint of, of adding a wallet feature and the backlash from that, I, I was reading through the Twitter reactions just to get a sense of what people were thinking. And I also often spend time reading through TikTok comments on crypto videos. And, you know, I think most common on both of those forums is the the response around the environment. Yeah. And so I think you're setting the, the world on fire needs, with your greed, that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. And so I think the community needs to do a better job kind of communicating the innovations being made for environmental friendliness. And, you know, a lot is being done. And so you know, we, I suppose we have to find creative and accessible ways to do that, that go beyond kind of explaining complex things like proof of work and proof of stake. But I think that is key for this year. And, you know, the other is a little maybe less specific and and a little vaguer and more challenging, which is, you know, I think the crypto movement often doesn't do a great job of welcoming new people. And it kind of is this clubby exclusive community sometimes with its own language and you know, I think that's really exciting when you go through the work of going down the rabbit hole and understanding what's going on. But to other people, it can seem daunting or kind of off-putting. No one likes feeling excluded. And so I think another piece of it is figuring out how to welcome more people and, you know, not think you're better just because you were a little earlier to the movement. And then the last piece I would say is, you know, I think right now it's pretty, you know, we're in some sort of bubble. And I think we're seeing a correction right now you know, you and I are talking in in January 2022, you know, it's not been a great month for cryptocurrencies. It hasn't been a great month in the public markets. 
I think this correction is probably needed, but I think a lot of the sentiment around NFTs and crypto come from this kind of irrational exuberance mm-hmm. that we've mm-hmm. been seeing where it's like, yeah, you know, a JPEG might not be worth, you know, a million dollars. Some of them maybe are, but, you know, I think it, you sort of give people easy things to criticize when you sell you know, digital clip art of a rock for a million dollars or something. Or, or the girl so, who literally is selling NFTs of her bottled farts. Like they're, they're like, that to yeah, me is exactly, just like, peak, exactly. like, come on. Enough. Exactly. So we're, you know, and I kind of like it to a long time ago, I wrote a piece called about how, you know, NFTs are kind of similar to, or aren't similar to Beanie Babies, because, you know, a lot of people talk about tulip mania or beanie baby mania in the 90s as these sort of bubbles to point to. And people are questioning, you know, are NFTs that bubble? And the difference is there actually is a lot of really important technology innovation and utility from NFTs. But, you know, that's buried beneath a lot of sort of frothiness in the market. Right. And so the difference is, you know, just like in the late 90s, most of the tech companies went to zero. That doesn't mean that the innovation of the internet was not an important innovation. It just means that we got a little ahead of our skis. And so I think that'll be the story, you know, this year and next year, where probably 90%, maybe 99% of NFTs right now that are trading that have traded at a ridiculous sum or, or high value will go to zero. And I think it'll be really painful. And you know, some will persist those with utility or maybe an early project like CryptoPunks. But you know, I think that will be something that maybe is good for long term mainstream adoption. And that it takes away the, oh, well, this movement is just about hype or it's a massive Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It, I, you know, I, it's funny because there was, I mean, there have been several NFT, well, in, just in the last 12 months, there's been two, right? There was an NFT pop last March, and it was really focused, I would have said, on digital art, right? So you yep. had, you know, concept artists and that kind of thing, you know, selling their digital art. And then there was a, I don't even want to call it a the winter, PFP there one. was a fall, there yeah, was a, yeah. there was an NFT fall. And then, yeah, the collections, I would say, really kind of popped in the fall of this year, right? You know, the board API clubs and the CryptoPunks and that kind of thing, those sort of 10,000 collectible, you know, with, with functionality, the yep. NFT projects started to really kind of boom. And now it and reached peaks yeah. even higher than the spring, Yeah, absolutely. Right? And now again, like you said, January, we're probably looking at another kind of correction. It will be interesting to see how many of these sort of peaks and corrections we need before we get to some of that sort of um, whatever you want to call it, like the mainstream understanding of why this isn't tulip mania and why there is, yeah. you know, perhaps some interesting actual real world legitimate value uh, to NFTs and crypto and blockchain, all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I want to try and extend that question a little bit. Kathy ha- Hackle, you know, whatever, godmother of metaverse or what, whatever her, her title is, she had a, a really interesting podcast last year that I listened to and. She had some really interesting sort of insight and she talked to some really interesting guests. And um, she made a really interesting point on her episode talking about fashion in the metaverse, which is obviously an area she, I think, knows a lot about. And she was differentiating between sort of old guard or again, you know, 2.0 fashion companies, right? Gucci, et cetera, yep. who were bringing products to 3.0 platforms and then brands being born directly in 3.0 like artifact maybe i guess the fabricant would be another and i'm sure there are many others that i you know i don't even sort of know the names of and i don't know but again my assumption is that if you were to go to a you know a gucci collector subreddit right so people who grew up collecting you know real world Gucci bags. They have closets filled with, you know, incredibly expensive, you know, sort of Gucci items. I don't imagine that they're in there shaking their fists at the sky in the same way when Gucci brings a bag to Roblox. So there, Mm. and I could be wrong, but I feel like there's something in the nature of that community that would not necessarily make it as, as sort of anti-NFT or anti-digital collectible as, for example, you know, whatever the Ubisoft fan, you know, the fans of Ubisoft games. So I guess what I'm sort of fishing at here is technology aside, is there something about the nature of the community itself that you think Mm. makes some communities more accepting of 3.0 
explorations or innovations? Is there something mm. inherent in how the community was formed or how the community was brought together or what brought them together that might make some communities more or less accepting of a transition into a 3.0? I mean, it's a really interesting question. Of Certainly, I would say that some people do have a knee-jerk reaction to crypto, Web3, NFTs. And so you could say, here's a digital Gucci bag. They're like, great. You say, here's a digital Gucci bag. That's an NFT. There's automatically going to be a reaction among some people. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, because of media, you know, headlines around what we just talked about with, you know, the kind of boom and frothiness. You know, I think what you have to do is I'm always skeptical of when something is an NFT or is crypto related for no reason. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it's sort of bolt on crypto in my mind, or you have to ask yourself the question, why does this need to be on a blockchain? You know, why is this a Web3 company? And I think, you know, from an investor perspective, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs now, it's a question to ask of, you know, is there a good reason for this to be a Web3 and not a Web2 company? Or is it just that's sort of the thing that's hyped up right now and the exciting new movement. And so I think for NFTs specifically for, you know, a, a digital Gucci bag, you should lean into utility and utility NFTs will be the story of 2022. So going back to, you know, to take a second to go back, you know, you were talking about how the booms of 2020-21 were really driven by, you know, digital art and then PFPs, profile pictures for the second boom. You know, I think if I had to put money on what the next kind of breakthrough use cases of NFTs will be, I would say music is a good bet and gaming as well. And so I think the goods, the digital goods in these kinds of digital worlds that are successful and don't have the kind of knee-jerk reaction for just being on the blockchain or NFTs for no reason are those that will lean into the power of that. Mm. So what do I mean by that? You know, maybe there's a limited number of Gucci bags, you know, where they you have provable scarcity and owning each one of them is a ticket to the Gucci fashion show. Or, you know, I'm just spitballing here, but maybe a key part of it is that you get to capture a sale of secondary sales on your reselling of Gucci bags, which, you know, is a key part of NFT marketplaces and, and the concept of you know, blockchain transactions, whereas, you know, if it's just kind of a random digital bag, that's very challenging to do in one of these centralized worlds. So or maybe it's like, you know, Gucci airdrops their best customers, this bag, you know, you can't transfer it. And it just gives you special access or discounts Mm -hmm. or different things like that. I think there are a lot of really powerful ways to play around with with owning an NFT. Do I think that it's necessary to tell people, it's an NFT. I don't. I think, you know, you need to explain these concepts in a way that's more accessible, where instead of saying, oh, like the bag I just gave you is non-fungible, you say, oh, you're one of our best customers. You know, you're getting one of these exclusive 1,000, you know, digital tickets or digital passports to being a Gucci super user. And you lean into concepts that people understand, like, uniqueness like you know gaming is another great example here where you know a lot of hardcore gamers understand the concepts of you know oh i have this limited edition weapon that has these powers and you know what blockchain can do is now i can sell it and you know transfer it or earn you know shares a share of income on reselling it and i i it's provable that it's rare and scarce so i think those are concepts where if we can remove the kind of NFT for the sake of being an NFT or Web3 for the sake of being a Web3 company and just lean into the kind of really cool parts about the technology and what it enables and make that accessible by abstracting away complexity, that will lead to a much more kind of open arm reaction from the public. And I, so I'll just, I'll state uh, a thought and I'm happy to hear your reaction to that thought. And then maybe we can move on into our next section. So when I look at the communities, right, if I look at Gucci collectors, and again, I'm huge sort of uh, painting with very broad strokes here, right? But if I look at Gucci collectors, I don't necessarily assume they have strong technical backgrounds. I don't assume they necessarily grew up in a digital only environment. I don't necessarily assume they played tons of video games. I assume they're relatively affluent, you know, possibly have had money for a while, you know, who knows what they actually do for a living. And, uh, you know, they found a brand that speaks to them and, and, you know, they want to celebrate that passion with other 
frankly, rich people. But yes, they're going to understand scarcity and rarity, but they didn't necessarily live it in their digital day-to-day existence. Gamers have lived rarity and, frankly, some variant of ownership. Their perception has been one of ownership. It hasn't been legally owned, as we know, right? But the way that gaming has branded items and earning items and finding items and collecting loot and upgrading your character and unlocking this powerful sword, etc., has celebrated these ideas of rarity and, to a certain extent, ownership and possession and pride and a lot of those things that go with that. And so gamers have been feeling this for years. Now, some of it has been, again, like their perception of it. But what I'm arguing is that because these communities have very, I guess, elevated understandings of what some of these concepts mean from personal experience, like day-to-day when they've been playing WoW and they've been playing League of Legends and they've been playing these games with their friends for years and years, that their expectations of value add are significantly Mm -hmm. raised, right? Just saying, oh, you now have one of a thousand. They're like, yeah, well, I can do that with a database and I don't need to set the world on fire to do it, so don't bother me with your NFT stuff. There's somehow a more jaded audience because they have this background. And so I think everything you said about education and branding and marketing is true. And I think everything you said about utility is true. And I think there's going to have to be some really, as you were sort of identifying, like breakout functionality that clearly identifies why this absolutely wouldn't be possible in a 2.0 world, for example, gaming communities to open and and embrace these things. And in particular here, I'm talking about players because the speculators will obviously come in with their crypto billions and they'll buy whatever, but they're not necessarily buying these things to play, right? But the players who are going to be living in these worlds, trading these items, possibly growing the value of these items, I think they're going to want to see these really clear use cases that cannot possibly be um, replicated in a 2.0 framework in order to say, yeah, okay, you know what, I'm in. Yep. And I think, you know, Ubisoft comes to example as as the backlash that we were talking about where this is exactly the the criticism. I do think you have to be crystal clear with why this needs to be Web3. You know, I think music is another example where you know, I think I think really cool things being done, like, for instance, Royal and music, Royal.io is the website, you know, buying a share of a song, earning a share of royalties on the blockchain. And then, you know, a lot of a lot of really cool things in Web3 are, you know, built around tokens. And so, you know, rewarding early adopters for this, their support with a token as it appreciates in value. That's a really powerful concept in how to bootstrap network effects and align incentives in a community and and reward people. You know, I think those concepts are ones that can be played with. And so maybe it goes back to, you know, we were talking about Decentraland earlier, you know, another key difference between Decentraland and Roblox is Decentraland has a token. Yeah. And so, you know, that incentivizes different behaviors and, and rewards early adopters. Um, so I completely agree. And I think there, you know, if there's one sort of web two-ish company or founder who pushes forward in this, I would say, yeah, I'd probably put my money on Tim Sweeney of Epic Games mm-hmm. because he is so, I mean, he's so outspoken around the, I mean, you see it in the Apple versus Absolutely. Epic lawsuit. And I mean, he's really just outspoken about the benefits of, I, I think he's even said, you know, around the, the concept of a metaverse, you know, we'll all be doomed if it's owned by one company. And, you know, if meta owns it, we're all doomed. And, you know, we often forget that a lot of the pop culture depictions of, of the metaverse, like the Oasis and Ready Player One are kind of dystopian mm-hmm. in that, you know, the story in Ready Player One is literally around trying to make sure that a big bad corporation doesn't get a hold of, of the Oasis, the metaverse. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Epic introduced some, you know, interesting piece of Web3, you know, Fortnite already, as we chatted about, has effectively fungible and non-fungible tokens with V-Bucks and with the skins, and so that would be something that would be my like out there prediction. Mm. But I think, you know, it's going to be really interesting. And we've already seen a lot of the blockchain based games build in the browser because they're afraid of Steam or Epic Game Store. Yeah. Yeah. Or Apple or Google, which yeah. I so, OK, this is great. You just you laid the foundations for the bridge into our final section really elegantly. So let's jump into some predictions. So awesome. so you were saying Epic and, you know, you as a 
I mean, Epic is such a strange beast, right? Because they're a platform and a technology provider and a publisher and a game developer kind of all rolled into one. But certainly, you know, they're a big player in the world of gaming. If they dip their toes into crypto or Web3 in any sort of way, shape or form, it's going to get a lot of attention. I've heard others say that like many things in kind of consumer tech, it's going to take one of the big platforms like the Apples or the Googles or, you know, the Facebooks of the world uh, to embrace 3.0 for it to become truly mainstream. Do you have any thoughts about which of the major platforms are the most 3.0 friendly or the most 3.0 curious? Or hmm. can you imagine a world where Apple or Google opens up and starts allowing a little bit, you know, cryptocurrencies inside their games or, you know, whatever? Yeah. Who do you well, think, think just, who do you think yeah. who do you think flinches first? I guess that's my question. Oh, um, well, I think to start with the last point, it is very hard for me to imagine. Apple and Google doing that, and they would not be at the top of my list of who I think would embrace 3.0. You know, I was actually thinking about that this morning. I was like, of the, you know, I don't know, call it 10 big, probably, you know, this one of these that I'm going to say is not in the top 10, but of the big kind of tech companies, two of them have changed their name in the last year to be related to these buzzwords that we've mm. talked about. So that would be Facebook Meta. changing to Meta yeah. and then Square changing to Block. Oh, yeah, right. Which, you know, I'm c continually thrown by because I got an email this morning from someone at Square and she introduced herself as working at Block and I had to, you know, kind of do it. Right. I was like, wait a second. And so that, that led me to think about that. I was like, wow, you know, that was a pretty dramatic name change. And, um, you know, so it was Facebook's. And I think, you know, Facebook's was less dramatic in my mind because I think they desperately needed a rebranding yes. and, and to move away from Facebook. Whereas, you know, Square is a pretty strong brand and it's pretty forward of them to, to rename as block. So, you know, that's just to say, you know, it's already been interesting just in the past three months, really, we've seen two major tech companies with 100 billion plus market caps change their names to, to refocus in some ways on, on Web3. So that is certainly something I wouldn't have necessarily predicted for 2021. You know, I think, you know, Epic is certainly one that comes to mind. I think I'm generally skeptical of Web2 companies moving into Web3. I think it's just a completely different DNA from the get-go. You know, I think it's sort of the innovator's dilemma. I think it's going to be very challenging to rebuild these massive behemoths as, as Web3 kind of companies in that it again, going back to what we talked about, it kind of reinvents a lot of norms around what is a company, who are shareholders, where does value flow. And so I really think the next kind of iconic technology companies that are built and, and maybe the ones that are the most successful of the Web3 era will be startups, which, you know, excites me in my and I, sure. it's probably my optimistic Absolutely. take as someone in the startup world and as a venture investor. But, you know, it's really exciting to think about, Of you know, the I think Chris Dixon's the one who has said that networks are the most powerful invention of the web. And, you know, my kind of thesis and, and one of our theses at Index that we're just excited about is that, you know, the net, next networks will have some component of user ownership and economic value attached where, you know, they might it might not be full decentralization. I think, you know, the movement of crypto loves decentralization, but I think the kind of hard reality is that mainstream people do not necessarily love decentralization as much and there are a lot of benefits to centralization but i think there will be some component of user ownership and economics flowing to creators and consumers and i think that's going to be the most interesting shift and you know the big companies that succeed on that will be startups that are built natively from this new dna Sure, but okay, so we, we could leave it there. We could say, all right, listen, 2.0 companies, either, you know, you give up or you stick in your 2.0 world and 3.0 companies, you know, like you, you will be the, Eat your lunch. Yeah, <laughs> you know, whatever, exactly. you're, you're going to succeed if you're awesome kind of thing. But of course, you know, it, we know that it's not like Facebook's just going to roll over, right? And be, or sorry, Meta is just going to roll over and be like, oh, okay, I guess we're not relevant anymore. You know, of totally. course, and yet they're not going to go full 3.0 either. As you said, it's like impossible. That is a ship that yeah, cannot fully pivot, right? It's probably like, you know, I mean, they have different incentives. They have shareholders. I think it's, they inch toward this future. Yep. You know, I think Twitter's last week did NFT profile pictures. You know, I think that's an example of, taking steps in the direction, but not necessarily reinventing the entire yep. business or wheel, right? So then, mm -hmm. okay, so then like as a sort of, I guess, closing message, right? We've got probably lots of people listening to this podcast who probably work at 2.0 companies. 
They're probably focused on innovation. Obviously, they are 3.0 aware, right? They're clearly paying attention to 3.0, but they probably look at things like the Ubisoft situation and go, well, it's not like we can just announce a 3.0 project, we'll get torn to shreds, right? So there's lots and lots of people who are 3.0 interested, maybe even 3.0 excited, but who have a certain amount of, you know, whatever, inertia, shackles, as it were, that are kind of holding them back. So if you have some closing advice from, you know, deep in the the heart of 3.0 land to those of us who are still sort of sitting over on the the 2.0 side of the fence, looking over at your side saying, hey, you know, there's some cool stuff happening over there. I I can't move over there, but uh, there's some interesting stuff going on. What advice do you have to us companies who are still in 2.0 land about what's going to happen this year and next year? How can we, you know, best explore this space in a contributing way and in a non-destructive way? There are the first resource. I mean, there are a lot of really good learning DAOs Mm -hmm. online. And so, you know, one from my friend Nick is called Invisible College. Another from a friend Peter is called Odyssey. And these are... I had Peter on the podcast last year. I love Odyssey. It's awesome. Oh, great. Yeah, he's incredible. And I mean, these are just cool because, you know, both of them are really... Their goal is to allow more people to sort of be red-pilled, to go down the rabbit hole, to understand what's so exciting and groundbreaking about Web3. Mm-hmm. And you get to do it in a community of people who you know, aren't afraid to ask questions, who have the same questions as you, and, and get that kind of community support and accountability. So I think joining those are very is a great thing to do. And then relevant to that, you know, a lot of learning DAOs are on Discord, but I'm constantly surprised by people who want to understand Gen Z or are curious about online community or crypto and um, have never been on Discord. And so, <laughs> you know, it's it definitely is a good marker of, you know, I think every consumer tech investor definitely needs to be on Discord. I, it's not, you know, we're investors in Discord. And I think, you know, it is it may, might make you feel old in some ways, just like using Snapchat might have. It's not always super intuitive. And I think, you know, it was initially built with gamers in mind and has evolved into, I think there are 15 million active servers every week now. So there really is a community for everything. But, you know, it's a big part of the Web3 movement, too. And so there's no better way to learn than joining some discords of projects that you think are interesting. And, you know, you could just lurk and and poke around and read and see what people say, or you could even better actively kind of engage and ask questions. And I think that's probably the best, best thing that you can do to learn. Cool. Okay. You've known for some weeks now about the topic we were going to we were going to cover here. This sort of 2.0 to 3.0 transition, the growing pains that 2.0 companies are feeling, trying to dip their toes into the 3.0 waters, etc. Are there any closing thoughts on that subject that you wanted to have a chance to discuss or share that this line of questioning, you know, didn't give you an opportunity to do? You know, I think the one closing thought that I would share and and something that's top of mind for me this week, as you know, the markets are not necessarily being friendly and, you know, I want to cry for my personal portfolio, but I think we should both, you know, from a portfolio perspective, but also from just a movement perspective and a Web3 era perspective, take the long-term view. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 2022, you know, maybe it will be a rough year for the markets. Maybe we're at the start of a, a crypto winter. But I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that often the best companies, projects, organizations are built during crypto winters. You know, OpenSea, for instance, I think was probably... I think in August of 2020, they were still only about seven people. You know, they'd been around for, they started in 2017. They, you know, were around for a long time. You know, Devin and Alex had so much conviction in what they were building. But, you know, they started during the CryptoKitties boom. And then, you know, NFTs kind of went into a winter and, and all of crypto was in a winter. And and they kept their heads down. They were smart about capital. They kept building. They worked on improving the product. And then they were ready to go when things kind of came back. And so, you know, I think that's a great example of often the best companies are built and are working hard quietly in the shadows during the winters. And so, you know, my, my sort of main closing thought would be not to get discouraged by day-to-day volatility, but to give some thought to what are the theses that you have a lot of conviction in? What are the companies and entrepreneurs and builders and developers that you get excited by and have conviction in? And then, you know, take the long-term view and use the kind of 
it's still so early. So use the, the coming year or two or three as a way to continue to learn more and build. All right, Rex, uh, real pleasure. I loved talking through all of this sort of stuff with you and, and getting your insight. It, you have a very interesting home at the cross-section of culture, Gen Z, consumer, entertainment, Web3, uh, et cetera. So I will continue to look forward to your, your long form, look forward to your, your newsletter, and hopefully we can, I don't know, our paths will cross again, perhaps even on this podcast someday in the not-too-distant future. All right. No, that sounds... Thank you for having me on. It's It's fun to talk about these and these topics and kind of give some thought to to what's coming around the corner and certainly going to be an exciting few years. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for having me on and really looking forward to the next one, Ben. All right. Talk to you soon, Rex. Thanks so much to Rex for sharing his time with us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully you learned something new and didn't hear just a rehash of the same things you've been hearing on a million other podcasts and reading on a thousand other blogs and newsletters. Generally speaking, when I choose my guests, they're usually people who do participate in the thought leadership. They usually are on other podcasts. They usually do blog. Uh, they usually do interviews. And so it's not always easy to try and come up with a line of thought that is slightly different, that, that is exploring new edges of the topic at hand. But that's definitely what I set out to do here. I'm not necessarily interested in just asking the same questions that have been asked a thousand times already, although I'm sure sometimes I do that as well. What I'm trying to do is find a new angle, a new avenue to explore. And so, of course, I'd love to hear your feedback on, frankly, whether or not you think I'm succeeding or any other angles you think I could have explored or I could have brought up that I didn't. Uh, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Any thoughts you have obviously help make sure that following episodes, following guests and uh, angles of questioning are on point hopefully introducing new thoughts, new ways of looking at the topic in question, and ultimately providing interest and value to all of those who are taking the time to listen. Thanks, as always. Tune in soon for another episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Mattis. Have a great end of day. Bye.